So Friday night, Corey and I attended her office party. It was kind of the, the typical office party for a dental office, like food and laughter and maybe a little too much conversation about fillings and enamel and sterilizers and kind of par for the course, you know, a little, little bit of that shop, talking shop. And near the end of the evening after dinner was served um, and eaten up and before dessert, we played a game of holiday jeopardy. Her boss always comes with these questions and quizzes. And we had three teams of five, which made it even more fun so we could collaborate. And one of the questions our team got right for 500 points was what is the most watched Christmas movie in America? Anyone just want to throw out some guesses? All right, one at a time. Wonderful Life, Miracle on 34th Street, Elf, Toy Story, Charlie Brown Christmas, what's that? Home Alone, Nacho Libre, National Lampoons, yes, yes. All right, all right, all right. Now, what was interesting on our team of five is that there's three of us over 40, and, we can, and, and two people in their early 30s, and we all came in at the same exact time. Wonderful life, elf. I was like, what? Like, just the, the generation gap, I guess. Like, like, they were so sure these two people in their early 30s, like, no, it has to be elf. Like, we watch elf 15 times a season now. We, we definitely watch elf. But it, it is, it's a wonderful life. It's a wonderful life. Thankfully, we won them over and won the 500 points. It got me thinking about tonight's sermon, though, this whole thing about the power of media, whether it's poetry or narrative, painting or sculpture, music or, or movies, our media, mediums, right, are mediums for both reflecting culture and making culture. They have the power to transmit new information or to enforce existing notions that we have about the way that things are. And when you think about the most popular Christmas movies out there, that means that these particular films have the most eyes seeing them, the most minds taking them in, the most emotions being affected by them. And it makes you wonder, what is being taught? Like, what are people, how are they being shaped by them? In It's a Wonderful Life, which is just a fantastic film. If you even just take it out of the Christmas category, it's one of the top 20 uh, best films ever made, according to many film critics. In the film, George Bailey models Christ's likeness as he empties himself and his status and ambitions in order to help the poor and struggling in his hometown of Bedford, New York. It's just a fantastic film, but it's a film, isn't it? It's not a theology class. It's not, uh, it's not a theology film, and so it's bound to have some questionable material. For example, where is it in Scripture that angels get their wings when bells ring, or, or vice versa, right? Like, where is it written also that there's an angelic ranking system, like you're, you know, you're, you're, you're at this station, then you get wings at this station, and then, you know. It's a Wonderful Life is a Hollywood film. And it's one of the best. It's designed to entertain, not to teach us theology lessons. And yet, because of the strange power of media and because of lack of quality education at churches, many people have come to assume things that, like when they die, that they become angels. We don't. Or that angels go through some sort of, some sort of testing phase in order to advance the ranks of angel armies. At best, we simply don't know, but that sounds really ridiculous. Maybe some year I'll do an Advent series on Christmas movies. Actually, this made me think I will sometime. I think it would be super fun. 
But this Sunday, we are in the second week of Advent, and we're taking a look at some of the Advent or Christmas songs that we sing as a church. So I'm not just talking about, maybe it's cold outside. Oh my gosh, so many problems with that song. But um, I'm talking about the ones that we actually sing in church, right? And we're, we've been critiquing whether or not these, these songs shape us and form us, or if they deform us. And lastly, last week, we kicked off the series with one of the most theologically insightful, scripturally rich songs that we sing, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. If you happen to hear that sermon, you'll know that I really didn't critique the song at all. Each line is anchored in scripture. It exalts Jesus while also rooting him in God's receptive plan as revealed in the Hebrew scriptures. And I hope that in learning the background to that song, you can now sing it with even more gusto and even more like, I know what Key of David means now, and that's pretty awesome. But this evening, we're going to be looking at a more controversial song. In fact, at least two major hymnals in the Western church have eradicated this song from, from being imprinted in their hymnals at all. Now, why would we take the time to explore a song that is so controversial? Of course, because that song is Away in a Manger. And Away in a Manger is consistently in the top three most popular children's songs, in a, children's Christmas songs in America. Okay, so we're not like going to just marginalize it and pretend that we're never going to sing it. So if we're going to sing it, we're going to understand it, church, okay? So it's so popular that it has been sung in at least 41 different tunes or melodies since it came to be in 1887. That's not a very long time, and that's a lot of different ways to sing it. The history behind the song is convoluted at best. It first appears in an 1887 book of songs titled, and you're going to love this, Dainty Songs for Little Lads and Lasses. <laughs> Where's that book when you need it? And, and in that copy of Dainty Songs for Lads and Lasses, next to Away in a Manger, there's this little uh, notation next to it in print that says it, it it associates that song to Martin Luther and says that Martin Luther, the great reformer from the 16th century, wrote this song and sang it to his kids before bed during the Advent and Christmas season. Now, for decades, this idyllic view of German mothers rocking their kids to sleep singing away in a manger persisted and grew throughout the Americas. Problem is, when historians in the 20th century who were now at war with Nazi Germany, wanted to really get behind this song. Why are we singing this German song? They realized when they started interviewing people that German people had never heard of it before. In fact, no one in Europe had heard of it before. It seems to have originated in Pennsylvania, Philadelphia, at a, uh, a German Lutheran church in the 1800s at some time. Okay. Now, we may never know who wrote the song, but we just can't seem to stop singing it despite the best efforts of New Testament scholars and theologians. So here's what I propose. Let's explore the song alongside scripture and put our detective hats on and see what the big fuss is about. Stand with me, please, as we read Luke 2, 1 through 7. So I know the verdicts read earlier, but you weren't thinking about it then as being a, a sleuthing text, okay? So let's put our hats on now. Now in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. 
Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was from the house and family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. While they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. The word of the Lord. Seven verses out of four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, only seven verses in Luke chapter 2 are devoted to actually describing the lodging Jesus was born in. Actually, only one of the chapter, or verse 7 is the only one that even talks about the lodging he may have been born in. Now, don't get me wrong. All four gospel accounts think the incarnation, that's the enfleshment of God in the person of Jesus, is extremely important. They just don't think it's that important to talk about where he was born or maybe what kind of structure he was born in. So John speaks of Jesus being the eternal word who was at the beginning with God, who was in fact was God. John doesn't care so much about the lodging Jesus was born into. He's more interested in the global picture, how God became incarnate and dwelt with us as a human being. So that's John's take on things. Mark 2 tells of the important story of Jesus' incarnation. But for him, the infancy narrative is overshadowed by the fact that in Jesus, God has come to bring his kingdom. Mark opens with a voice shouting in the wilderness, the voice promised from Isaiah and Malachi, the one preparing for God himself to come and dwell among his people. So that's, that's Mark's take on the incarnation, and it's important. Matthew roots Jesus deep within the story of God, from Adam to David and David to Joseph. Jesus' birth is portrayed as the fulfillment of God's ancient and purposeful plan to be Emmanuel, God with us, and Yeshua, the God who saves, or Yahweh saves. Matthew's gospel describes a clash of powers, Jesus and the kingdom of God at odds with the Roman Empire, Jesus and the kingdom of God at odds with Herod and the kingdom of human pride and sin and fear. Luke is the only one who gives us a glimpse of Jesus being born into the small town of Bethlehem known as the city of David. And away in a manger, uh, in that song, we sing that Jesus had no crib for a bed. That Jesus lay asleep on the hay. Those are lines from the song. This line makes us feel like poor Jesus didn't even have a crib. And he had to be put in a manger. Like that's the worst thing in the world. Like somehow Jesus was neglected or treated unfairly. Hence lies the first critique uh, new, uh, from New Testament scholars all around about a way in a manger. And that is cultural anachronism. Kids, say cultural anachronism with me. Yes, it's not an arachnophobia or anything like that. Cultural anachronism is a fancy way of reading our, our own perspective back into a culture that's way far away from us 2,000 years ago in a language we don't understand. It's a fancy way of saying just because we think that the normal sleeping arrangement for newborn babies is a wooden crib with a soft bumper 
and a rail that slides up and down so you don't have to hurt your back when you pick up the baby. Just because we think that that is what is normal, we must feel bad that Jesus' parents didn't have a pottery barn crib with sheets from wild blueberries in Fairhaven. Poor guy. Not only would that be reading our perspective into a different time, place, and culture, it's also ignorant, really, of how most people raise their babies, even today. Like, people put them in their bed, or they have them on the floor, or they, some people really do put them in hay with cloth. It just depends on where you're at. If you're in Mongolia, that's probably quite normal. And still, Bedouin people in the, in, in the Near East uh, still do it that way. So, got to get away from our perspective a little bit, a little bit okay? What about the fact that there's no room in the inn, though? How is Jesus forced to be out in the cold and in a stable? But is that a fact? Actually, for over 30 years, we've known that Jesus was probably not born outside in a lean-to manger that looks like that. He probably wasn't born in a cave. The Eastern Church thinks that. Yeah. Uh, explain, okay, all right. Why do we continue to believe that? I mean, I've taught that here several times over the years that he probably wasn't. I'll tell you why. It's on my bookshelf at my house. It's the nativity scene is a way better teacher than history. <laughs> our customs, our pictures, the things we've been told is cognitive dissonance. It's like, yeah, I, I heard that that scholarship doesn't say that anymore but it's everywhere. So it's hard not to believe, right? In reality, people of the ancient Near East held hospitality in such high regard, it's almost inconceivable. When you ask a person even today in the Middle East, could you imagine like a guy and his wife are pregnant and they come to their hometown, the town of David, and he's from the line of David, that they wouldn't be received in a house? No, because if anyone heard that that had happened, that town would be would be ban banished from the other communities in the Jewish community, right? So then what is this line, no room in the inn? Luke chapter two, verse seven. You can look at it. It's in black and white. Chris, don't tell me. There it says there's no room in the inn. See, here's the problem. Again, think, we think of ourselves rolling into town me with Corey, pregnant with our first child, and we're coming into a town that we don't live in, and we're looking for the Holiday Inn Express, because that's continental breakfast, and you got to get what you can when you, you know, only to find the room sold out, no vacancy, right, and we go to the Motel 6 and no vacancy, you know, you know what I'm saying? That's the picture that we have as 21st century people. It's hard to read the word in, I-N-N, -N, in verse 7 in our English translations and not think of it as a motel. But in reality, Bethlehem was probably too small to have any sort of commercial motel. In fact, the Greek word behind our English for in often refers to guest room or living space in a home. So think townhouse. Garage underneath the house, living space on the main floor, and bedrooms, maybe one or two in the upper floor, right? People, that, this is a typical construction of an ancient Near Eastern home, and in fact, in many places still today, they're built like this. When people traveled in Palestine, hospitality was a huge deal. 
you would house strangers without thought, especially pregnant ones. With the census, though, the living spaces may have been full. Normally, your family is in those two upper rooms. When guests come, you put them on the main floor. No problem. Come stay on the main floor. With the census, okay, the main floor may have been full, or it may not have been full, but who wants to have their baby in front of other strangers on the main floor? Got any place a little more privacy? You go down to the area. In fact, most people had their kitchens down on the bottom floor. You know what else they had on the bottom floor? Pretend this stage is the bottom floor, but the wall goes all the way out to where Eric and Emily and Schoon and Bridget are sitting, and this is the place through that door where cattle could come in. There's a step up to the kitchen area, and right here is a hole in the wall with a manger. And so that those animals can come in from the cold under the roof and come and get food. So Jesus was probably born in a full house downstairs and laid in a soft manger because there's hay there. It doesn't take anything away from what we used to believe when there's no room in the inn. And you think that the God of the universe became a human being and was humbly laid in a manger in some pedestrian house? That is still an amazing story, right? We just don't have to, we don't have to buy into these, these other things. Another critique of the song is the idea of cattle lowing, which wakes up the baby. Nowhere in scripture are there cattle presents at the birth of Jesus, so it's kind of nice to have, but that's not there. But by far the biggest critique of Away in a Manger are the charges of over-spiritualizing Jesus, right? This is, this is the low-hanging fruit one. But little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. Scripture and the teaching of the early church tells us that God became human for the purpose of identifying with us and us identifying with him. Humans cry when they're babies. Um, the APGAR score, right, Chad, tells us we want our babies to cry when they come out, right? It's a good thing. It means you're healthy, right? Human babies poop and pee and need to be burped. And they need to be comforted. And they're completely vulnerable and dependent on their parents. Somehow this song wants to transcend all of these messy realities and paint a picture of a Jesus who is simply sweet and never cries. He's presented in the song as something of a super baby. Mary must have got full night's sleep. Joseph never had to pull in a middle of the night shift to clean the nappies, right? Like he, it's just super babies here, the best baby you ever had. Now, what's the big deal, you might think? It's just a song. True, it, it is just a song. But we sing it in church sometimes, and it supports the teaching of two major heresies. Two heresies that took hundreds of years to eradicate via ecumenical councils of bishops in the first centuries of the church. And two heresies that continue to bear their ugly heads. Like some kind of hydra. You just can't. You chop off one and more come. All right? And so it's important that we don't put fire onto these heresies, right? Because they, they, they'll take off on their own. The first and the most general heresy that this supports is Gnosticism. Gnosticism is a term derived from the word gnosis, which is Greek word for knowledge. So, Gnosticism, knowledge. 
the fund now Gnosticism is so massive and covers so many things I'm just going to give you the nutshell version okay the fundamental belief of Gnosticism is that matter is evil physical world not good that somehow a cosmic battle between the gods accidentally created the physical world including human beings but they taught inside of every human being is a spark a little piece of the divine since they were created by accident by the gods the, the the substance of those gods was dispersed throughout human beings and everybody's got a little piece of the divine in differing amounts now here's just a fundamental problem i'm going off script a little bit but if you think that the spark got divided up unevenly among people and you can't do anything to get more spark all that gnosticism can give you is how to unlock the spark that you have so let's say tommy just has a major chunk of god spark in him and we're born at the same day and i've just got a little teeny tiny bit but his teachers start to see well he's got a major spark chris is i'll never be as valuable in society see how that works it's almost like a caste system built in you can never there's no idea of everyone being able to be saved or everyone being able to be fulfilled only those with more spark and in fact gnosticism is one of those ancient mystery religions where you know the term secret handshake comes from it comes from this there's like secret handshakes and like if you're in the in club if you're one of the more sparkier people then you are the upper crust of society it's a mess it's horrible the goal of the Gnostics was to reach enlightenment and so to activate the spark inside you. So if one reached enough uh, station in life, when they died, it was believed that they would ascend to the, their spirit would ascend to the one and that they would be free from the physical body, which was seen as a prison. Don't tell me you haven't been taught that at some place in your church. I have been. This old prison I'll be free of my spirit. That's a Gnostic idea. That is not a Hebrew, Jewish, or Christian idea. Gnosticism seeped into Christianity among some groups, and these Gnostic Christians, if you could call them Christians at all, believed that Jesus was not God. It was inconceivable for them to believe that God could ever be physical, but they believed that Jesus was the most enlightened of men, and that he would guide those with enough spark of the divine, he would guide them into the spirit world. They believed that the body was evil, which played out in two different equally destructive directions. First, some believe that the, that the body is so bad that it should be abused, whipped into shape literally, self-inflicted starvation, beatings lack of hygiene lack of exercise or healthy diet and those types of actions were seen as holy i'm not just talking about like fasting or or um, or simplicity or these very healthy disciplines i'm talking about personal abuse of the body and today just to kind of crack this open a little bit we see this today some of you struggle with these things you're like no i don't listen listen to some of these ways that we do um those who believe or don't believe that the body is made in God's image and is a gift from God um, causes us to see people overworking, undersleeping, overeating, underexercising. We see people abusing themselves, and that is a Gnostic residue. Why? Because it's anti creation. 
If I really thought that my body and my psyche and my emotions were gifts from God and a temple of the Holy Spirit, I wouldn't make some of the choices I do. I wouldn't put so much stock in getting that last thing done. I would go to bed more often on time. Why do I push so hard to impress you? You wouldn't know if I didn't say half these things probably. I, I don't know. My own problem. I, and you identify with that, right? Like you, the, why do we treat our bodies so badly? Why do we think we can just push a little bit harder? Who are we doing it for? Right? That, that's Gnostic residue. That's not Christian residue on there. The other extreme were the types of Gnostics who overindulged themselves. And their thinking was this, since the body was inconsequential, it didn't matter what you did with it. That was their line of reasoning, at least. Eat as much as you want. Drink as much alcohol as you want. Please yourself as often as you want, in any way that you want, in as many, in as many ways as you can get creative. And again, the Bible gives us a very different perspective. Since the body does matter, and since it is a gift from God, and since it is a temple of the Holy Spirit, we should see our lives as holy. Sex is for marriage, uh, the marriage bed alone. Food is for nourishment, relationship building, and celebration, not just personal satisfaction. So the Gnostics wanted to divide the body for the sake of the spirit, right? They wanted to cut us in half, spirit good, body bad. Jesus brings those two worlds inescapably together. He became a human, which means he cried and he needed his mom just like you and me, and we can identify with that, and that's the point of his incarnation. Right? Now, I haven't even gotten to the, uh, the heresy of Apollinarianism yet, but we're running out of time, so I'm just going to, maybe next week, okay? That's the second kind of heresy that, uh, uh, that this, this song supports. But I do want to leave some time now for taking a stab at redeeming a way in a manger. I don't think this song's going away anytime soon. And so it's my view that if we can be aware of the dangers it poses theologically, we might be able to leave here with some positives of what, as well. So for some of you, might, that might be hard. You've already written this song off. Um, let me take you down a little journey real quick. First of all, are we making too much of some of the details being a little bit off? I mean, Jesus was laid in a manger a feeding trough for animals. Is it too far-fetched to think there may have been some lowing of cattle just because the Bible didn't say that they were there? Does it mean that they weren't there? I don't know that that's such a deal-breaker for me. And while scholars now believe that this was likely inside the house, is it, yeah, too unreasonable to think that some of those animals may have come into that area? Isn't there room in our music and our art, even Christian music and art, maybe especially Christian music and art, for artistic license to some degree? I think so. It's not like Gnostic heresy. If anything, the presence of hay and cattle make the scene even more earthy, don't they? But here's the bigger reason I like the idea of cattle being there and the line in the song that the stars and the bright sky looked down where he lay. You see, I think the Bible supports a theology of creation celebrating the birth of Jesus. 
And one of the reasons I say that is because look at what creation did when Jesus was crucified. We read in the scriptures that the sun and the moon hid their light, that the very earth quakes with grief, that rocks, a biblical metaphor for stability and strength, are split in two when Jesus dies on the cross. And I wonder if in a way in a manger, if it might echo the larger truth of all creation coming to pay homage to Jesus, who is their savior as well, savior of, of humanity, savior of the created order. I like that idea. It's biblical. Now let's revisit these lines about sweet baby Jesus. It, an important, as important as it is that Jesus was very human, and that he did cry so as to avoid the Gnostic heresy, I don't think we've gone far enough unless we can appreciate the humility it took, the God of the universe, creator of all things, the creator of his mom and, and earthly dad. I don't think we, we've gone far enough unless we can see him also as a sweet, helpless baby. The creator of heaven and earth made himself vulnerable. I mean, babies, most of them at least, are pretty sweet. They're approachable, unless they're yours for the first time. That's horrifying. <laughs> New babe, what do I do with this thing? They're, they're humble, you know, they, they're maybe a little selfish for survival modes, but they don't, they don't have guile yet, and they're accessible. And I think that that's the point. Had Jesus been born in a palace, shepherds would never have access to see him. Had he been born in a temple, Gentile magi, pagans from the east would never have been allowed in. But Jesus was a baby in a pedestrian home among everyday folks, and that is not by accident. I don't think God does things by accident. I don't think when God becomes incarnate, it's by accident that he shows up in the city of David in an approachable, regular house. I think it's very on purpose. You see, that makes it so that the only barrier to knowing Jesus can't be our social status or our ethnicity, or even our religion, the only barrier will be our own pride and our own prejudice. Now, there's so much more I think I could say and actually want to say, so if you're coming to small group on Wednesday, I'll get to say some more stuff. Um, there's other ways I think we could redeem away in a manger. There's certainly more ways I could critique it. We'll do a little bit of that too. But let me bring us home with what I believe is the biggest devotional strength. I think that this song encourages us in a childlike sense of affection and trust. I love you, Lord Jesus. Look down from the sky and stay by my side until morning is nigh. Close by me forever and love me, I pray. In the scriptures, when people receive Jesus or when they're received by him, they love him. They love him. They are devoted to him. In our culture, we've kind of turned Jesus into an option or like an insurance policy. We've turned Jesus into like this leader of a religion that we learn about in Sunday school and we study and we, we turn him into this like object that we can get around and kind of nitpick and figure out by scholarship what kind of place he was born. Oh, it's not a cave, it's not a manger. It really matters, Chris, that he was born in this. You know, so we, we, we do this academic thing with Jesus. And we tend to emphasize following his teachings rather than knowing him. 
But when you read the story of Zacchaeus, you don't see a man who weighs his options and chooses Jesus off the shelf of available saviors like you might buy laundry detergent or a bag of chips. Zacchaeus is undone by Jesus. He's a business savvy tax collector. He's wealthy. He's a high roller. And he acts like a child when Jesus comes to town. He climbs trees, invites strangers over. He makes poor financial decisions all of a sudden, offering in this moment of passion, if I stole from anybody, I'll give back four times as much. I mean, it's just like he's giddy. Jesus has transformed this man. He loves Jesus. He's not just cold and collected and I've chosen wisely this Jesus amongst the other options on the shelf. Mary anoints Jesus' feet with pure nard, her prized possession, her retirement plan in a world without social security. She kneels before Jesus in public, wipes his feet with her hair and her tears. You don't do that to a philosophy. You don't do that to a wise teacher. You don't act that way to an aristocratic, dignified politician. You do that to someone who's changed your life. Someone who loved you when others didn't. Someone who saw you when you were too disgusted to look at yourself in the mirror. That's the type of person you worship and are devoted to. And in this verse, I love you, Lord Jesus. Be near to me, Lord Jesus. It's not only scriptural and a really good thing to ask for, but I think it can help build in us an attitude of trust and dependence and intimacy and love. We are, I mean, some of you aren't, as I look around, some of you are pretty special and unique, but I think as a culture, I'm lumping myself in there, we're pretty guarded people. You know, we, li we live in a world that's constantly trying to take advantage of us, really. Look how many phone scams I got last week. We're, trying, we're taught to be wary of strangers and wary of phone calls and wary of, of those in power. Taught to be weary of a good deal. I mean, I was told at an early age, if it seems too good to be true, it probably is. And it usually is. Except with Jesus. With Jesus, the one who's coming, we anticipate an advent and celebrate during Christmas We've seen our creator eye to eye and found him to be more loving, more gentle, more affectionate, more forgiving than we could ever have imagined. So I think that singing Away in a Manger might just help us enforce that healthy stance toward Jesus. Would you pray with me? Bless you, Lord for coming to dwell among us. And bless your servant who penned this song, probably with good intention and good heart. And just like all of us, we usually get part of our theology wrong. But I pray as we've considered this song and we've considered the reality of, of your coming to us as an infant, that you would help us to approach you as children. Lord, we confess that we are accustomed to being in charge. We are fearful of looking like fools. We feel pressure from our school and 
parents, from coaches and bosses, from our friends and from those who oppose us. It is hard for us, Lord, to be childlike. But I pray by the power of your spirit, you would unlock that childlike faith in us. To become fools for you like Zacchaeus. Not unthinking. But uncaring what other people might think. Help us to grow in our love for you. Our devotion to you. And I pray, Lord, for a deeper sense of your saving love. We confess, Lord, it is hard to be loved. So many of us don't believe we're really worth it. We've built excuses up about why we can't be loved. We might even do things to push people away from loving us. Hound of heaven, I pray that you would be relentless in your pursuit and your breakthrough, my sisters and my brothers and I. Bless you, Lord. Amen.